Hi, I'm Allison Brody. And I'm Rebecca Kaufman. We're the producers behind the On My Mind podcast, here to remind you that support from listeners just like you makes the show possible. Give online at dianereem.org slash donate. Thanks so much for your support. Hi, it's Diane. On my mind, the story of how Donald Trump took over the Republican Party. For decades, the GOP was defined by Ronald Reagan and the coalition he built. But over time, cracks emerged as the grassroots of the party became mobilized and the working class gained a stronger voice. The election of Donald Trump seemed to mark a final breaking point with Reagan's vision of the conservative movement ushering in a new, more populist and nationalist era for the GOP. Gerald Seib, executive Washington editor at the Wall Street Journal, says this evolution is not as surprising as it may seem. He takes a look back in a new book titled, We Should Have Seen It Coming. Jerry Seib, the title of your book, We Should Have Seen It Coming. Tell me what the it is. It is Donald J. Trump. (laughs) And the book arose because, like a lot of people who wrote about what happened in 2016, even if we had some inkling of what might happen, we ended, or at least I ended that experience, wondering how did this happen? How did the Trump phenomenon occur? And then as I thought about it, I started to write about it some for the journal in my column uh, in the newspapers of the Wall Street Journal. And the, the more I wrote, the more I realized that there were deep roots here and that I started to become particularly fascinated with the year 1979 when the Jimmy Carter presidency kind of fell off the road and went into the ditch. The door was opened for Ronald Reagan. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought there's a continuum. There's a, there's a line to be drawn from that point to Donald Trump. And the changes that were underway in the Republican Party and in the conservative movement from 1979 until today were actually there to be seen. These things, as you know, Diana, are sometimes clearer in the rearview mirror than they are looking out the front window as you're driving through them. And that's what I decided to put together. It happens to be the arc of my journalism career, so it kind of all made sense to me. But the more I look back, the more I realize that Donald Trump was not a bolt out of the blue. The precursors were there for years, Patrick Buchanan and Sarah Palin and the Tea Party and Mike Huckabee. All kinds of things told you the Republican Party and the conservative movement were undergoing very profound transformations, but from the bottom up more than from the top down. But of course, during that period of time about which you write from Reagan to the present, we had uh, Bill Clinton and we had Barack Obama. Did those two presidents in any way put a pause on that movement of the conservative effort or did they help to accelerate it? Well, I think they may have accelerated it in some ways because in the conservative world, both those presidencies, Bill Clinton's and even more so Barack Obama's were seen as basically signs that the conservative movement was failing and that it needed to kind of adjust. And in the case of Bill Clinton, he was a master because in some ways the real height of the Reagan revolution 
the Reagan-style conservative movement actually came when Newt Gingrich was in charge of it after Ronald Reagan had left the scene. And when in 1994, there was the contract with America and he took over, he led the Republicans in taking over the House. And in some ways, that was the high watermark of the Reagan revolution. And then it all fell apart within a matter of a few years, in part because Bill Clinton had masterfully co-opted the conservative movement. He moved to the center. He took the ground out from under Newt Gingrich. He outwitted Newt Gingrich after having lost the House to him. And he then basically figured out how to triangulate, take enough of the conservative message to seize the middle ground, and Gingrich collapsed. And that was seen as a failure by the conservatives. And then I think even more so, Barack Obama was seen by conservatives as a sign that they had lost their way, that how could this guy be elected president and how could he even more win re-election? And that's really what created a kind of a rethink uh, among conservatives. And I think some of that disappointment, particularly in losing in 2012 to Barack Obama for a second term, that opened the door to a more populist message. And you can see that in the timeline. So what did you see at the Republican convention last week that you could identify as connected then to the Republican Party you've covered for 40 years. Well, it was interesting because pieces of both the Republican parties that I, I write about, the old Reagan-esque one and the new uh, Trumpian one, were there. And, you know, you sort of had echoes of, I thought, of the Reagan message in the speeches by Tim Scott and by Nikki Haley, the, the former governor of South Carolina and the current senator from South Carolina. And they kind of had gave traditional conventional conservative speeches of the kind that you could have heard in the 1990s or you know in the 2000s earlier. And then juxtaposed to that was a real populist message that came from just about everybody else. And I think the populist message is partly economic. It's like the global economy doesn't work for us. Trade has failed us. We are being hurt by these policies. But a lot of it is cultural. You know, they are out to get us. Immigrants have harmed the economy. They've harmed us. The elites are out for you. I mean, there are all those elements of the, the cultural side of the populist national movement were there. And so in a way you had, I think, what is one of the questions confronting Republicans and conservatives this fall on display, which is after this year's election and after Donald Trump, whether he wins or loses this year, what comes next? Is this now a nationalist populist party? Or does it snap back to something more conventional and sort of more traditionally Reagan-esque, if you will? And I think that's an open question. So what do you think it is now? Is it a Republican Party without a platform, without its own ideas or ideals, a party of one with fealty to Trump? Well, right now it is Donald Trump's party. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And it, you can't put Trumpism back into a bottle, as I wrote in a piece for the journal a couple of weekends ago. It's not going to be that simple, but that doesn't mean that it is necessarily changed in this direction and permanently forever. Again, when Donald Trump leaves the scene, and whether that's this year or four years from now, there will be a moment of a time of reckoning for Republicans, and they'll have to make the decision about this. I think one of the things that's really interesting right now is that you have a group of younger intellectual conservatives um, and people in the, in the establishment like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley trying to find a way to put together a traditional conservative message with the Trump 
spirit of populism and nationalism and see whether you can put those two things together into kind of a new Republican conservative message. And it's kind of hard to do because traditional conservative thinking was basically friendly to immigration. It certainly uh, was for things like balanced budgets. Free trade. Free trade, absolutely. Free movement of people and, and, and goods were the hallmarks of traditional conservative thinking. And those are things Donald Trump is not only not for, he's actively against those things. And so can you marry traditional conservative thinking about those core issues with nationalism and, and Trump uh, populism or not? I don't know, but there is a movement underway and it's not getting much attention right now because Donald Trump tends to drown out everything else. But there is an intellectual movement trying to figure out how these things might be put together into a more coherent message. You know, Donald Trump doesn't have an ideology. He has instincts and kind of a gut feeling about the world. And so it's when people say there was no Republican platform. Well, I mean, that doesn't surprise me because there's not a governing philosophy. He doesn't even really pretend to have one. The question is whether you can create one out of Trumpism when uh, we move on to the next phase. You pinpoint a moment in 2016 when Senator Ted Cruz spoke on the podium at the Republican National Convention. What was it about that moment that you feel is so important? Well, I have to give credit to my wife, Barbara Shavitz, here, and you know her, Diane. Um, when I started on this project, she said to me, you need to figure out the moment when this party moved from Reaganism to Trumpism. What's the moment? And as I thought about it, I realized I was standing there on the floor of the Republican convention in 2016 when it happened. It was that moment when Ted Cruz, who was the last man standing against Donald Trump in 2016, gave his speech at the convention as the, as the guy who was next in line, who the runner-up, as it were, you're entitled to give a primetime speech. And so Ted Cruz did. And there was deep animosity between Ted Cruz and Donald Trump at that point, as there had been for months. And it was a kind of an electric moment because people weren't sure what Ted Cruz was going to say. And Ted Cruz had run as the embodiment of, of Ronald Reagan. He was a huge Reagan fan. He has a giant portrait of Ronald Reagan hanging in his Senate office. Um, he talked about Reagan a lot. He felt he was the rightful heir to the Reagan legacy, and he lost. And so what was he going to say? He, so he gave a speech, and as he gave the speech, it became clear as he talked that he wasn't going to endorse Donald Trump. And in fact, at one point, he said conservatives should vote their consciences, essentially. And at that point, Boos rained down on him. For a minute straight, he had to stop speaking because the booing was so loud. And about that time, Donald Trump walked into the arena and all these heads turned from Ted Cruz, who were there, they were heckling toward Donald Trump. And I thought, that's the moment in which the party moved from Reaganism to Trumpism. And so the reason I wrote about that moment was I thought you could actually point to the moment in time when that happened. But Ted Cruz himself has been appropriated by Trump or the Trump movement. It didn't take very long. No, by the end of the campaign, he had, he had basically decided to bury the hatchet. And of course, when I talked to him, I asked him about that. And he said something similar to what other Republican office holders hold. He said, I decided to make my peace with Donald Trump because one thing I really care about is appointing conservative judges. And not only will he do that, he promised to do that. And I had names of judges I thought should be on his list to consider for the Supreme Court. And he accepted those. So I had my influence. And if I'm going to be in Washington, and this is Ted Cruz speaking, if I'm going to be in Washington, if I'm going to make a difference, 
I have to work within the system that exists. That's why I'm here. And other Republican office holders will tell you the same thing, that you have to, if you want to get things done, you have to work within the system that exists, not the one you wish existed. And in the book, I kind of split Republicans into three categories, which is oversimplified, I know, but there was there are the huge Trump acolytes and fans, people who are all in. And then there are the never Trumpers who have just basically left the party, left the whole idea behind and have become the active opposition. And that number, by the way, is dwindling as time goes on. And then there are the people I call the straddlers, the people who have decided they, they're not going to fully buy into Donald Trump, but they're not going to live in undying opposition to him either. They're going to make accommodations. And that includes most Republicans in Congress. Uh, you know, maybe they just like being close to power, but I mean, to give them the benefit of the doubt, they have to work within the system if they want to make changes that they actually believe in. If they have things they think ought to be done for the country, they have to find paths to get those things done. And there's no path to get those things done except through Donald Trump at this point. What about Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham? Graham spoke out so strongly against Trump before he was elected. I mean, with words that normally he probably would have used for a liberal Democrat. Instead, he now praises Trump to the skies. Yeah, and I, and I have some of those Lindsey Graham words in the book. And I, ha- I find it a little harder to explain that one. I mean, because he's gone from being basically, and I think this may be a your word he used at some point. If not, it's the equivalent. He basically went from calling Donald Trump a kook to basically becoming his golfing partner. And that's a pretty extreme switch. And I, I find it hard to explain that one. The movements by people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell, who you asked about, I think I find easier to, uh, to understand. I mean, they, again, they are in the, well, we got to do business in the place where we have the business set up. And that happens to be with Donald Trump as president. So I'm going to find ways to make that work for me and for what I believe in. Lindsey Graham is a more extreme example because he has gone beyond that to becoming a, a defender, a champion of, of President Trump. And I'm, I'm not sure I understand that one entirely, except that I think the, the thing that unites a lot of people who are conservatives and who are both straddlers and lovers of Donald Trump is intense dislike for the opposition, you know, the, the liberal ideas and the liberals themselves. And so a lot of Washington is about being united against the thing we agree we don't like even more than being united about the things we agree we are for. So a lot of us, including those like yourself writing newspaper columns, were surprised by Trump's victory. But you say it wasn't really a fluke. No, and I think that's the overriding message of the book. I think there were a lot of signs along the way that a lot of us either discounted or thought were marginal developments or rationalized the way in some other way that in fact were huge uh, flashing lights that something big was coming. And I, I consider a couple of those to be particularly important. I think Pat Buchanan was a very early sign that there was a populist nationalist movement already back in the, you know, in the George H.W. Bush era that was live and well in the Republican Party and growing. Pat himself ran for president. He did, twice. And um, as Bill McInturf, who's the Republican pollster who does, helps do our Wall Street Journal NBC News poll, told me at one point, he said, Donald Trump is basically Pat Buchanan with his own airplane, that there is a direct line from Pat Buchanan's thinking about trade and immigration 
and what's good for the new people in the Republican Party to Donald Trump. So you had those you had those signs, and I certainly put Sarah Palin, and I certainly put the Tea Party in that category as well. You also had something that was hugely important and that I, I think Donald Trump actually understood better than others did, which is a big demographic change within the Republican Party over time. You had a lot of uh, working class, middle America, move into the Republican Party for cultural reasons. They didn't like abortion rights. They didn't like gay rights. They were unhappy with the level of immigration, which was going way up. And having arrived in the Republican Party, they changed the character of the Republican Party. And they also changed its view of economics. For people like this, you know, the global economy and free trade and cheap immigrant labor were not exactly things that worked to their benefit. As somebody, an email from a reader who said, you know, if you live in a town in middle America and they've closed down the factory because it's moved to China and you go down the street to try to get a job at a fast food restaurant to take its place and you're competing against immigrant labor, your view of the global economy is a lot different than people in the traditional business wing of the Republican Party. And so there was that as well. And I think that was, that was taking place. And so I think by time... 2016 rolled around, you had a combination of cultural populism and economic nationalism. And in a way, the door was open for Donald Trump, and he just happened to be the one who walked through it. What about gun rights? How big a role did that play? I think they were important, but I think probably not as important as some of these other factors, because the the Republican-Democratic split over um, over gun rights has been there all along. You know, it goes all through this period of transition. And so that's kind of a constant. I do think the thing that happened in 2016 that was different was the role the NRA played in going all in for Donald Trump and in, in a multi-million dollar fashion. I mean, there was a lot of NRA money thrown behind Donald Trump at times when other parts of the Republican establishment just weren't buying in. And so I don't think it was the gun rights issue per se, but I do think the NRA stepping in to fill a void for Donald Trump, which is to say to provide some establishment support at the time when other Republicans were running for the hills, that was important. You start with Reagan, but what about Dick Nixon? What about his law and order themes? You know, it's funny because in these conversations I've had with people, different people pick different starting points for this. Um, I picked 1980. Jim Baker, the former Reagan chief of staff, and then George H.W. Bush, secretary of state, said, well, you should start in 1976 because that's when Reagan tried to unseat Jerry Ford. And you had the classic conservative versus moderate Republican contest beginning. You could go back to 1968, and that feels newly relevant today because Richard Nixon decided to basically seize on the law and order theme, as you said, that Donald Trump used. And people forget this. He used that heavily in 2016, not just in 2020. He gave his acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention in 2016 and said, I am going to be the law and order candidate in this race. So this is a theme that really did move into the middle of the Republican Party in 1968 with Richard Nixon. I think the difference then was there was an outlier candidate, a, a former Democrat, George Wallace, who outlawed and ordered Richard Nixon and won five Southern states in the process. So, yeah, there was a lot of law and order in that campaign, but the Republican nominee did not have it all to himself. So how much of a role do you think law and order is going to play in this campaign and in this election? Oh, I think it's going to be huge. Uh, I just finished writing a column for the journal in which I said basically 
what we're seeing right now is a battle for the strategic high ground in, in this campaign, to use the military metaphor. The one army, the Trump army, is trying to make that high ground law and order, and the other army, the Biden army, is trying to make that high ground the coronavirus crisis. And each is saying that this is a metaphor for what's wrong with America under my opponent, that for the Democrats, the whole coronavirus crisis is an illustration of what's wrong with Donald Trump's America, his presidency and his leadership, um, his failure to get come to terms with it, his, his failure to take responsibility for anything. And the Trump campaign is going to make the metaphor law and order. And that's the, that's the, the, the issue that shows you everything that's wrong with democratic rule in this country and everything that will be wrong with Joe Biden's um, America. And I think right now, um, it, you know, at the beginning of this general election campaign, which of those arguments prevails is very much an open question. But I think the strategic argument has become very clear in the last two weeks. So would you say that the uh, riots, the outbreak of rallies in both Portland and Wisconsin are helping Donald Trump? I think they are. I, I personally, I don't think there's any doubt that that's the case right now. Now, I can't quantify that, and we'll find out more as public polling is done in the wake of uh, two conventions in coming weeks. And I also don't know whether that's temporary or permanent because three weeks ago, we would have had, the, certainly four weeks ago, we would have had this conversation and said that the racial unrest ferment that's happening across the country is revealing that there are a lot of white, middle-class, upper-class suburban voters who are very concerned about racial injustice and systemic racism in this country. And that that's what the summer of unrest was really bringing to the surface. But now the wheel has turned a little bit and what's bringing to the surface is that, but also, a parallel concern about the wheels kind of coming off the cart, that there's a, you know, an element of violence and, and unrest and just destruction that's scaring people. So which of those is it? I, I don't think I know, but I think at the moment when we're talking, and certainly Republicans think this and Democrats are ask, acting as if they're worried about it, the net effect of that is to, to at least be temporarily helping Donald Trump. my conversation with Gerald Side when we come back. My name's Nick Hartigan. I listened to The Diane Reem Show for many decades, and now my son is listening with me to Diane Reem on my mind. Makes me think of uh, when I listened to The Diane Reem Show with my mom. It takes a lot of work to produce a podcast like On My Mind. It gets made because of the members of WAMU. So if you love it, then you can support it. You can make sure it keeps getting made and you keep hearing Diane on the air. Make a donation at WAMU.org. Here's the rest of my conversation with Gerald Sive. His new book is titled, We Should Have Seen It Coming, From Reagan to Trump a front row seat to a political revolution. What's happened to the people who had led the party, who believed in not only law and order, but decency of behavior and decency of presentation to the public? What's happened to them? Well, a lot of them are still there, uh, obviously, and they are simply making accommodations. Uh, they don't like Trump's style. They don't like 
what they worry is damage to institutions, but they do like many of his policies and they certainly like tax cuts and they certainly like deregulation. They certainly like conservative judges. And they're just simply making a kind of a hard-headed calculation that will put up with style and kind of even a character that we don't like. Some of them have left. I mean, what you just said is uh, very much like what you, Pete Wainers, a friend of mine who was a speechwriter for George W. Bush, writes and talks about this a lot, that the character of the conservative Republican movement that I grew up in has been destroyed and I'm not going to be part of it. And he's become a never Trumper. Some of them have become Democrats. And so there's a, but there's not an obvious rallying place for them to go because they, people like the, the kinds of people you describe are not necessarily comfortable in the current version of the Democratic Party either. So I think one of the interesting questions going forward is where people like that land ultimately. And that may depend on how the two, each of the two parties evolves over the next couple of years. What about suburban women? Oh, I think that that's the audience that has most clearly turned. I mean, that's the big change. Suburban women, uh, and many of them were you know, traditional Republican voters, moderate Republican voters, hung in there with somewhat surprising strength for Donald Trump in 2016, but they're not there now. I mean, that, that support is really diminished, if not cratered. I think the question, just in tactical terms of uh, the, this election is in many ways, where does the Trump campaign go to make up, to find the additional voters to make up for the loss of those suburban women? I think in large measure, the answer may very well be finding and activating new Trump voters, working class white men in particular. And in a lot of the states that we're going to be paying attention to on election night, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, um, Michigan, Minnesota, a lot of the people who didn't show up to vote in 2016 were people who looked like Trump voters. You know, the largest group of non-voters in those states, even though Trump won, was still were still working class white males. And so there are additional Trump voters there to be had if they can be registered and activated. And that's, in a way, the struggle. What about Black people? Well, you know, that's an interesting, that's an interesting question, because you saw at the Republican convention last week a big outreach to African Americans, to Black Americans, particularly Black men. And the truth is, Donald Trump did okay among Black men in 2016, and his numbers among Black men are actually improving a little bit. So there is, not Black women, but Black men, and so there is, there is a certainly a hope within the Trump campaign that they can actually add enough black men to make the difference in these states where the margins are going to be very tiny. And at, at a minimum, the messaging there was to make Donald Trump look acceptable enough to black America so that white Americans kind of have permission to vote for him. Because if they are worried that he's a racist or a misogynist, they feel guilty about voting for him. So a lot of that messaging was directed at black voters, but a lot of it was directed at moderate whites so that they feel comfortable enough voting for Donald Trump and don't feel guilty about doing so. So how willing are conservatives to bend their own principles to adjust to Donald Trump? I was reading this morning about the FDA and that whole presentation on the part of Donald Trump about this revolutionary approach to the COVID virus using the plasma and the extent to which the FDA had literally been, I want to say, hijacked, but I'll use forced to move forward with a statement on that that really it wasn't prepared to do. Right. And so you have a couple of, you have a number of things that conservatives have traditionally put great stock in. One's institutions, 
like the FDA. One is basically character and civility. And, you know, Ronald Reagan stood for that. Even people who disagreed with him, he rarely demonized them. He did some, but not not like this. Uh, fiscal responsibility, you know, that has gone out the window as well. Um, a limited executive power, something conservatives believe in. They're, they're mistrustful of too much consolidated power at the top. And certainly Donald Trump is not uh, in favor of limiting executive power. He's expanding. Exe- All those things are items on the checklist that would bother conservatives. But it, you have to remember that this is also as compared to what? And a lot of conservatives won't tolerate all those moves away from things they believe in. But a lot of them are really worried about what's happening on the liberal side of the equation. I mean, the whole cancel culture atmosphere, the sense that free speech is being shut off in, on college campuses, the, the specter of judges that will grant you know, unlimited abortion rights. These are all things that conservatives worry about. And so a lot of them are having to make a calculation that we dislike Donald Trump's version of conservatism, uh, more or less than we dislike the kind of the the picture of uh, a liberal-led America that we see emerging. And they're agonizing over it. And some have come down on one side of that question, and some have come down on the other side. But I think it's always important to remember in American politics that every question is a question of this as opposed to what. And, you know, Newt Gingrich told me flat out, he said, Donald Trump is not a conservative, but he's an anti-liberal. And for a lot of conservatives, that's enough. But Jerry, how authentic are those concerns? Free speech on college campuses, unlimited abortion rights. Are those true to the extent that Trump is claiming they are true? No, I mean, there's, a, there's clearly exaggeration involved, right? And so we'll see a lot more of that in the next uh, what is it, uh, September, October, eight, nine, ten weeks before the election, we'll see a lot more exaggeration. You saw a lot of exaggeration, huge amounts of exaggeration at the Republican convention. Well, I guess what I'm saying is there are trend lines that trouble conservatives, and the trend lines are going to basically force them, to, and you know, a lot of these trend lines are, were embodied in the Bernie Sanders campaign, and you know, they've, uh, they believe Bernie Sanders is now in control of the, of the Democratic Party, and that bothers them, and so does that bother them more than Donald Trump bothers them? That's the basic trade-off conservatives who don't love Donald Trump are wrestling with right now. What about the young people who call themselves conservatives? Are they likely to carry on, whether Trump wins or not, along these same lines? I doubt that. I think I think younger conservatives are going to look for a different non-Trumpian message. You know, there'll be some elements of the Trump message that they've certainly bought into. I think the you know, the, the anti-free trade part of the Trump message, for example. But I think that among younger conservatives, there is a feeling that the government ought to be doing things to benefit people, and it should be more willing than conservatives have traditionally been to help people, to use government power to help people. They'll take that part of the message and carry it forward. But I think they're less likely to, say, just, just dismiss climate change, for example. And I think they're less likely to want to uh, demonize others. I think there is a, a new generation of new age conservatives who are kind of figuring out where they're going. And it's not going to be to follow the Donald Trump path religiously. I think it's to will be to pick off some things that he stood for, that he identified as things that bother Republicans and conservatives these days, but to jettison some parts, certainly the operating style. 
What about Senator Marco Rubio pushing for something he calls a common good capitalism? What does that mean? Well, I think that is, in, in a way, the, the new face of conservatism. Common good capitalism means basically, yes, we accept that free markets are a, a good thing overall at 10,000 feet, but we also have to admit that when you go from just free markets to libertarian economics and you have free trade agreements that ravage American manufacturing, that hurt communities, and that leave people basically without economic recourse, and that harms families and our harms communities, we just can't say, well, that's tough luck. That's what the markets, that's what market forces have done. And the Marco Rubio message is that's not good enough, that we have to be willing to accept that that market forces can do those things, but then use government power to help those people and in a meaningful way. And if that means basically having an industrial policy that gives specific help to specific industries that are in danger in a global economy that we think are important, not just to our economy, but to our communities and our culture, well, we should use the government to do something about it and not get hung up on a on an ideology that's blind to the effects on people. That's the Marco Rubio message. He, honestly, he tried to bring that into the 2016 campaign to some extent. He just got drowned out by Donald Trump. He couldn't get a hearing. But he, among others, is now fleshing out that message. You know, it's interesting. I can remember going all the way back to when Robert Reich was Secretary of Labor, talking about these same ideas, the government helping those who've been misplaced by a changing uh, domestic manufacturing market. Never happened. No, and I think that this is an interesting analogy because Robert Reich was, in fact, somebody who was saying those things, but he was at that point a distinctly minority voice in his own party because the Clinton administration had kind of moved to the center. And there was a very strong bipartisan consensus at that point behind free trade. There's a fascinating picture that's in my book of a a, a day at the White House when, when Bill Clinton, who was new as president, was kind of wrapping up NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And he had a ceremony there. And and all these former presidents showed up, you know, George H.W. Bush and Jimmy Carter and Jerry Ford. And there was it was kind of a picture of the bipartisan consensus in the center of the political spectrum behind free trade. There were some outliers. You know, Robert Reich, who was a more liberal Democrat, was one on the left. And there were people like Pat Buchanan, we've talked about on the right. But the bipartisan consensus behind free trade and a belief that, well, there'll be some some rough spots created by free trade, but people will adjust and the economy will be stronger as a result, was basically a, a gospel a message in both parties. And then it sort of evolved over time. And we're now at a point where that's not the belief in both parties. And you're seeing Joe Biden move away a little bit from his own traditional free trade beliefs. Although I, I, I will just say as a footnote here, having spent some time in recent weeks looking at the Biden record on free trade, it's he was more cautious about free trade than people recognize, I think. Yes, he voted for NAFTA, and yes, he was in favor of China joining the World Trade Organization, but he also voted against some trade agreements over the years, arguing precisely this. This is going to be harmful to people in important places, in important industries in the U.S., and I'm not going to vote for this. So it's not a 100% free trade message, though. That's what the Trump campaign is going to want you to believe this fall. What about this notion of smaller and smaller government where are young Republicans going to go with that idea, whether Trump wins or not? 
Well, you know, you, you, you want to be cynical, you would say that the idea of small government has gone out the window in both parties. I mean, you know, we were running a trillion dollar a year deficit under Donald Trump before the coronavirus hit. Uh, there was no shrinking of government to speak of um, over the last three and a half years. And there certainly isn't underway, any underway now during, the, during a, a, a genuine national crisis in which everybody wants the government to do more, not less. So that is just not where Donald Trump came from. I mean, Donald Trump basically, unlike Ronald Reagan, who ran pledging to eliminate entire cabinet agencies, he didn't do that. He ran for president saying, I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to cut Medicare. I'm not going to cut Medicaid. I want a bigger defense department. You know, there was no small government message in the Trump platform, and there isn't now. And certainly in terms of spending, you know, good luck trying to convince people right now in either party that they should spend a lot of time worrying about deficit spending. Except that he is talking about a temporary halt, temporary to payroll taxes, which would certainly have an impact on Social Security and individuals would have to pay that payroll tax back once it's reinstituted. Except that if you listen to some people, including Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, their answer to that is, well, we don't necessarily need to have that money paid back. We will replenish the Social Security Trust Fund elsewhere, that is to say, from general revenues, which is a huge change if you think about it. And people haven't grasp this. In other words, you take Social Security and just put it in the hopper with every other government program, and that's essentially what they're arguing for. And then that is a recipe for bigger, more spending in the general revenue accounts and a bigger deficit. And it breaks the link between the Social Security Trust Fund and the benefits that you get when you retire. That's a big deal. And that's what's under discussion right now. How likely is that to happen, Jerry? I mean, people who count on Social Security for retirement. If it's moved into the general funds, who's to say it's not going to become part of a larger and larger deficit and eventually disappear? Well, I think for that reason, it's not likely to happen, but that is basically the proposition on the table from the Trump administration right now. I think another reason people won't want that to happen, and it frankly, in my opinion, shouldn't want that to happen, is that if you throw Social Security and Medicare into the general trust, out of the trust funds and into the general budget, then it becomes another political football every time out there's a budget fight. And every time there's a government shutdown, you know, it becomes a a debating point. And right now, it is at least, those programs are at least walled off from those perennial budget fights in the in in Washington, if they're in the general fund and the, they're funded like every other government program, they become political footballs and they're used as leverage and they are in peril. Leaving aside the fact that deficit spending raises some questions about their solvency, there's also the fact that they become uh, less protective. Would conservatives like to do away with Social Security as a government handout? No, I think we're beyond that. I mean, you know, when Ronald Reagan came onto the scene, he talked about that. But I think we're way beyond that. And we're certainly way beyond that on Medicare as well. I think the, the, the debate this year, leaving aside the, you know, the taxes question we just discussed, is whether Social Security benefits ought to be expanded or left as they are. And Joe Biden has talked about expanding them, and Republicans have talked about holding the line. So that's about as far as you're going to go right now in terms of 
conservatives being opposed to social security. I, I think in, in that sense, those programs have become sacrosanct. Jerry, trust in government is probably at an all time low. Whether Trump wins or not, do you think it will ever be regained? You know, I am, tend to be optimistic about the country and the, even the political system, and it's hard to do that sometimes these days. Um, I think there, you know, we, ha- we can remember situations in recent history. I mean, the period after 9-11, for example, uh, when people actually th- rallied around not just one another, but around their government and thought at least for a while that government was doing a good job of fixing, addressing a problem. I think what it takes is basically some national consensus and a leader or leaders who can pull that together. And I, I point in this case, not just to whoever's in the White House, but to the bipartisan leadership in Congress. I mean, they have to act like people who know how to have the argument and come together at the end of the day to convince people that there's a consensus in Washington. And if there's a consensus in Washington, maybe there can be consensus in the country. And I, th- I think that will happen again. I think it will it will involve moving out of this period that we're in right now. But I don't think anybody is thrilled with the environment right now. And if people aren't thrilled with it, eventually they're going to demand something different. And when they demand something different, the political system, I believe, will uh, produce it for them. We're just not right there uh, right now. People are awfully worried about Russian interference in not only the 2016 election, but the upcoming election. Are you? Yes, they should be worried. And, and I am worried, you know, and I think that you have to remember that the, and this was true before Donald Trump uh, was on the scene, the great fear among intelligence professionals was simply that Vladimir Putin, uh, former KGB operative, had a goal, which was simply to sow discord and dissent, much more than to push a particular line or argument or candidate in the U.S. It was simply to make the democratic system malfunction and to be seen as a terrible model for the rest of the world. And that's still his goal, I think. And he succeeded to some extent. And we should all be worried about that. And that transcends support for Joe Biden or Donald Trump or any candidate. It is a statement of what I think the Russians are interested in doing. uh, And we should all be wary of that. Do you think there will be sufficient protection against interference? I think the fact that everybody is alert to it means uh, the chances uh, are, are lower than they would have been otherwise. I think the great fear about this election will, is much more that we will create our own confusion over voting and counting of votes, and we'll have a disputed outcome. And I worry a lot about that and what that does to the country and to the state of democracy. Before we go, is there anything further you'd like to say to our listeners? You know, one thing that I think we haven't discussed, but I think is is important and actually has relevance for today is that, you know, there was this long period in which conservatives seemed to have held together, even though they came from different places. There were economic conservatives and national security conservatives and religious conservatives. One of the things that held that movement together was the Cold War and a common enemy, the Soviet Union. And one of the things that happened over time was the Cold War ended and the glue that held conservatives together kind of dried up and blew away and they started to fall into different camps. You're seeing that the results of that today as well. And I think that 
that's one of the things that is true for Americans in general. We don't necessarily have a unifying common enemy out there. And maybe China becomes that, but maybe that's dangerous. But it's um, to some extent, the whole Cold War period was a bit of an aberration, you know. And so I think when we say that we're splintered and we've fallen out with one another, um, there's a lot of that in American history. And one of the things that was different about the Cold War period was it kind of held people together. That's gone. And I think maybe what we're seeing now, it looks like a really messy period in American politics. Maybe it's actually more the norm. And we shouldn't get too anxious about it because we've gotten through periods like this before. And I think we can do it again. Jerry, thank you. Thank you, Diane. It's really good to talk with you again. That was Gerald Zeib, Executive Washington Editor at the Wall Street Journal. His new book is titled, We Should Have Seen It Coming. And that's all for today. Thanks to those of you who've reached out to let me know what you'd like me to cover during this very difficult time. Please do continue to let us know what's on your mind. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter or send us an email, drpodcast at wamu.org. Our theme music is composed by Jim Brunberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. The show is produced by Rebecca Kaufman, Allison Brody, and Sandra Baker. Thanks for listening, all, and please do continue to wear those masks for your own safety and that of others. I'm Diane Reed.